Well, this video is going to be the first in what is probably going to be a fairly long series of videos wherein we are going through the Gospel of John. And my goal in this series is that we are going to be going through the Gospel verse by verse in a very thoughtful and methodical and careful and exhaustive manner. Uh, and I'm hoping that by the end of it, we will know as much as we possibly can about this Gospel and we'll be able to reap the benefits of that knowledge uh, and information in such a way as to both draw us closer to God and also allow us to go out and also teach it to other people so that they also can be drawn closer to God. That being said, uh, there's a lot that I think can be gained from this study, and I'm going to try to give you as much information as I possibly can without being boring. I'm going to do a lot of research and try to do as much as I possibly can to give you the important stuff so that you have as much information as you could possibly need, um, both to satisfy your curiosity, but also to draw you closer to God, because that ultimately is the end goal of any Bible study. Um, but I do want this to be a Bible study, and that being said, I'm wanting us to go through this and approach it from a bunch of different um, fact, like from a bunch of different perspectives. I'm wanting to look at it from a literary perspective where we just look at the book itself and look at the characters and the plot and the conflict and all those different things and see how they work together, look at the characterization of these characters, stuff like that. I want to look at things from an apologetic perspective where we talk about ways to defend um, the Bible and our perspective through these things. Uh, and I want to look at it from an evangelistic perspective, right? I want us to understand the gospel in such a way that we not only believe it ourselves, but that we can go out and proclaim it to the world. And so those are just a few things I'm wanting to get out of this study, and that's why it's going to be so long and so extensive. And I don't know how long it's going to take us to go through this, and I don't know if we're going to do this all at one time or if it's just going to be spaced out. But this is the first video. And that being said, with this being the first video in the series, we're not actually even going to get into the text itself today. We're going to make some references to it, but we're not going to actually be doing the verse-by-verse -verse study in this video. But this is going to actually just be an introduction video uh, wherein I'm hoping to give you all the information you need to know going into the Gospel of John. And so my main goals here are to answer the questions of who wrote it, when was it written, and why was it written? Because if you know those three things, that will really help you out a whole lot and not only being able to explain to others uh, who wrote the book and what it's about and stuff, but also for yourself, it'll help you be able to study it better. You'll know whose perspective the author is writing from, around what time they're writing it, and so what different influences might have gone into the writing, and also what their end goal is. Why are they writing this book? What is the purpose? Why did the Holy Spirit encourage this person and inspire this person to write this book? What is it that sets this gospel apart from the other three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke? So I'm hoping to answer a lot of those questions today and provide the foundation from which we can study it uh, starting in the next few videos. So, first questions first. Who was the author of the Gospel of John? Well, there are two main facts that we need to know going into this. The first fact is that the author is not named in the gospel. Like the three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the author never identifies himself as John. We never actually hear that um, in any of the gospels. Matthew doesn't do it, Mark doesn't do it, Luke doesn't do it, neither does John. Those are just traditions that have been carried on 
um, since the publication, I guess you could say, since the writing of those Gospels and their acceptance. Uh, however, the thing that does set this, part, uh, this Gospel apart from the others is that there is an unnamed disciple in the Gospel itself who claims to be the author of the Gospel of John. He doesn't call himself John. He actually identifies himself as the beloved disciple. And we actually see him being referenced multiple times uh, throughout the whole text. And at the very end of it, in chapter 21, uh, the beloved disciple says this, This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. So whoever this beloved disciple is, that seems to be the person who is writing the Gospel of John. We don't see his name, but I'm going to show you that we have very good reason to believe that this was the Apostle John. Spoiler alert. So that's the first fact. The first fact is that the author is not named. But the second fact is that the title, according to John, or in Greek, Kata Ioannin, has been attached to the Gospel as soon as the four Gospels began to circulate together. Um, so just like with Matthew, Mark, and Luke, as soon as the Gospel of John was written, the title, according to John, was attributed to it. You found that at like the top of the text to where it was saying, hey, this is the Gospel according to John as opposed to Matthew, Mark, or Luke. So throughout Christian history, we have had the universal attestation that this was the Gospel according to John. The question then becomes, which John? Because obviously... My conclusion is that it's going to be the Apostle John, but how do we get there? Because there are a lot of people named John in the world. Uh, and we start with the idea that it's probably, a auth uh, it's probably a person named John who's mentioned in the New Testament. Because if they're not mentioned in the New Testament, you'd expect some sort of moniker clarifying who this person named John is. You know, like John the Baptist, something that sets them apart from all the other Johns in the world. So you'd expect some sort of moniker to explain who this person is. And that would also justify them as being the authoritative voice of God in writing Scripture. So, since it just says, according to John, without any moniker or anything that justifies this person's writing, we're going to assume that this person is a John that is mentioned in Scripture, so that whenever people receive this gospel, they would say, oh, John, yes, I know who that is, that's who's writing. Okay, so, that gives us five options, because there are five people named John mentioned in the New Testament. The first person named John would be John the Baptist, right? Not John the Baptist guy who goes to the church, uh, to the Baptist church. No, not that John. John the baptizer, the cousin of Jesus, the guy who, you know, was baptizing people in the Jordan River before Jesus came along. That's our first option because he is the first John mentioned in the New Testament. He actually is the first character who takes the limelight even before Jesus in each of the four Gospels. But we have very good reason to think that John the Baptist is not the author of the Gospel of John, firstly because he was imprisoned and killed long before the events of this Gospel were completed, much less before they were written. Uh, even this Gospel itself talks about how John was imprisoned, uh, and the other Gospels detail the fact that John the Baptist was killed by Herod Antipas during the ministry of Christ. And so if this Gospel is being written way after the resurrection and ascension of Christ, John the Baptist couldn't have written it because he died while Christ was still alive and on earth. So that takes out John the Baptist. Leads us to our second option, John the father of Peter. If you're wondering, wow, I didn't know that Peter's dad's name was John, then you probably have the answer to the question here 
uh, that he was most likely not the author of this gospel because we have no reason to believe that he was. Um, never throughout church history do we have any mention of him in connection with this gospel. And in fact, this gospel is the only one that actually names Peter's father's name as being John. The other ones actually refer to him as Jonah, um, which there, there's some similarities there, and there's debate about that. But um, basically what you can learn from that is that if this was John, the father of Peter, there would be some sort of clarification that that's who it was. But we don't have any connection or any mention of a connection between John, the father of Simon Peter and Andrew, in relation to this gospel. So we can rule him out. Third option we have is John Mark. Did John Mark write the gospel of John? Probably not. We have no reason to believe he did. In fact, we actually have many reasons to believe that he did not write the gospel of John. Uh, Firstly, because the gospel was evidently written by an eyewitness, whereas John Mark traveled later on with Peter and Paul. Um, Whereas, like I said, we believe, uh, as is made evident in the text, the person who wrote this book is the beloved disciple. He was a disciple who was there throughout the entire ministry of Christ. And so it wouldn't really make much sense for John Mark to be the author of this, being that he was not a disciple of Christ who was with Christ throughout his entire ministry. And plus, even beyond that, John Mark already wrote his gospel. He wrote the gospel according to Mark, the second gospel. And it's largely believed that he wrote his gospel from the perspective of Peter, who he traveled with. Uh, We believe that Peter, you know, recited um, his stories to Mark, and Mark recorded them, roughly something like that. That's what church history holds to, at least. Um, But Mark already wrote his gospel. He wrote the second gospel. So this gospel is very different from the gospel of Mark. It wouldn't make much sense for them to be writing the same one. And also, Mark was not an eyewitness of all these events. So we can rule John Mark out as well. Which leads us to our fourth and second to last option, which would be John of the Sanhedrin, the fourth John mentioned in the New Testament. And if you're wondering who John the Sanhedrin is, that's a good question because we actually only have him mentioned one time. Uh, in the entire New Testament, and that's in Acts chapter 4, wherein he is part of the interrogating party who is antagonistic, to say the least, against Peter and John the Apostle, right? So the one mention we have of this John in the New Testament presents him as an enemy of Christianity. So it would not make much sense to assume that this John is the same person who's writing this gospel, because this gospel is not in any way antagonistic against Christianity. In fact, its whole purpose is rooted in the idea of causing you to come to Christianity. So, we can rule out John of the Sanhedrin as well, which leaves us with only one more John mentioned in the New Testament, and that would be John, the son of Zebedee, also known as the Apostle John. Right, So that's just a logical idea of how we're trying to rule out one after the other to come to the idea that John the Apostle is the author of this gospel. But we don't want to just leave it there. Um, this, the purpose of this study is to be exhaustive and intense. So I want to give you reasons for why we actually believe that the Apostle John wrote this. Do we actually have reasons beyond just logical, like, you know, just like working through it that way? Do we have reasons? to believe that the, uh, the Apostle John wrote this? And I believe we do. And I'm going to break these reasons, these defenses, into two categories. External evidence and internal evidence. When I talk about external evidence, I am talking about things 
outside of the Bible that we believe demonstrate that the Apostle John wrote this book. And then we're going to move on to internal evidences, that, which are references inside the Bible itself, specifically inside the Gospel of John, that give us reason to believe that the Apostle John wrote this. And I actually think they're very strong, which is, to me, super encouraging, and I hope it will be to you too. So let's start with the external evidence. Christian tradition strongly and consistently attributes the gospel to him. So whenever we look through church history and we look at all the early church fathers writing about these gospels and explaining how they came to be into the canon and how they came to just exist, universally we have people attesting to the fact that it was the Apostle John who wrote this gospel. There's this guy named Irenaeus uh, who lived around... um, well, in the uh, second century A.D., so in the hundreds, you know, uh, Irenaeus, he was a disciple of a guy named Polycarp, and Polycarp was a disciple of the Apostle John. And so Irenaeus, writing with the authority of Polycarp, had to say this around 180 A.D. He said that Matthew also issued a written gospel among the Hebrews in their own dialect, while Peter and Paul were preaching at Rome. And laying the foundations of the church. After their departure, Mark, the disciple and interpreter of Peter, did also hand down to us in writing what had been preached by Peter. Luke also, the companion of Paul, recorded the book, recorded in a book the gospel preached by him. Afterwards, John, the disciple of the Lord, who also had leaned upon his breast, did himself publish a gospel during his residence at Ephesus in Asia. So here Irenaeus is telling us where each of the four Gospels came from. Matthew is writing to the Hebrews in their own dialect, so he says that the original version of Matthew actually was written in Hebrew, which is interesting. Uh, You've got to take a lot of this with a grain of salt, but it's useful for us in helping determine the facts because we can just see what the different testimonies are. Right, so he says Matthew wrote it to the Hebrew people. Mark was writing based off of his interpretations of Peter. Luke was based basing it off of the preaching of Paul, and also presumably, according to Luke, you know, going and interviewing people. And then John, the disciple of the Lord, is actually writing the gospel of John. And he actually identifies John as the beloved disciple, the one who was leaning upon Jesus' breasts. So that's really cool. But that's not it. Tertullian, another guy from the late 2nd century, writes this, The same authority of apostolic churches will afford evidence to the other Gospels also, which we possess equally through their means and according to their usage, I mean the Gospels of John and Matthew, while that which which Mark published may be affirmed to be Peter's, whose interpreter Mark was. For even Luke's form of the Gospel, men usually ascribe to Paul. So Tertullian is agreeing with Irenaeus here, saying that we can ascribe Luke's Gospel to Paul, kind of, and we can ascribe Mark's gospel to Peter, but John's gospel is John's gospel, right? Once again, we have the gospel being pointed to John as the author. Thirdly, we've got a guy named Origen from the early third century, a great historian of the early church, uh, and he wrote this. Matthew first sounded the priestly trumpet in his gospel. Mark also. Luke and John each played their own priestly trumpets. Even Peter cries out with trumpets in two of his epistles, also James and Jude. In addition, John also sounds the trumpet through his epistles, and Luke, as he describes, as he describes the acts of the apostles. And now that last one comes, the one who said, I think God displays us apostles last. And in 14 of his epistles, thundering with trumpets, he cast down the walls of Jericho and all the devices of idolatry and dogmas of philosophers all the way to the foundations. 
So right here, we actually have Origen, who is not only saying that John wrote the Gospel of John, but he also wrote the epistles. Uh, so that's really cool, too. We have the defense of John's authorship of more than one book of the Bible, which is actually interesting, as we'll mention a little bit later, um, as an internal evidence for the Gospel of John, because the Gospel of John and 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John were very evidently written by the same person because they're written very similarly. So Origen, he confirms that. One more person I want to mention is a guy named Eusebius, who is actually probably the biggest and greatest historian of the early church, living around the 4th century. Um, and according to Eusebius, this guy named Clement of Alexandria, who lived in the late 2nd century, right? So Eusebius, 4th century, writing about Clement of the 2nd century, he said that Clement believed this about the Gospels. The Gospels containing the genealogies, he says, were written first. That would be Matthew and Luke, so they were written first. The Gospel according to Mark had this occasion. As Peter had preached the word publicly at Rome and declared the Gospel by the Spirit, many who were present requested that Mark, who had followed him for a long time and remembered his sayings, should write them out. And having composed the Gospel, he gave it to those who had requested it. When Peter learned of this, he neither directly forbade nor encouraged it. But, last of all, John, perceiving that the external facts had been made plain in the gospel, being urged by his friends and inspired by the Spirit, composed a spiritual gospel. This is the account of Clement. So Eusebius here is agreeing with all the other people we've mentioned so far and saying that John wrote his gospel. And he also agrees about some other facts as well, right? There's some discrepancies between a bit of the different things. But the main things we see here is that, you know, Mark largely came from Peter. Luke largely came from Paul. Matthew was a disciple of Jesus, so it came from Matthew. And then John, later on, wrote his. And so here we have an interesting idea that Matthew, Mark, and Luke were written first, and that John was writing a little bit later, and Eusebius actually references, that, references the gospel as a spiritual gospel. Right? So he says that this gospel is a little bit different, which would explain why it's so different from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. You can just take a glance at these very quickly and realize that John is very different from the other three, which are called the synoptic gospels, because they're so similar to one another. Um, so Eusebius is explaining, well, John was going for something a little bit different here, and you can tell that whenever you read it. And so that's the external evidence. Church history unanimously attributes the gospel of John to the apostle John. But now let's look internally. What evidence do we have inside the Bible itself that would suggest that the Apostle John wrote this? Uh, amazingly, we actually have a lot of internal evidence, which is really cool. And that's actually why I wanted to make this introductory video, because to me it's really encouraging that we have this. It's so cool. Uh, and I hope that you can get as excited for it as I am, because it's very amazing. So even internally, there are many reasons that point towards the probability that the Apostle John penned the fourth gospel. And I'm going to give you eight reasons why we believe that the, um, that the Apostle John wrote this. And they're going to kind of dwindle down to where we start with a big group of people and eventually bump down to just one. Uh, it's really cool. Firstly, the author is not named. Right? We already mentioned this earlier, but the author never names himself in the Gospel of John. The author never provides his name other than to describe himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Right? And so that fact in and of itself suggests that somebody of authority had to be writing this. Because the Apostle John is named 20 times in the other Gospels, yet he is never mentioned in this one. Which is odd for two reasons. Right? Like, so think about it this way. 
In the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, John is mentioned multiple times as a very close and crucial figure in the Jesus story. He's close to Jesus. He's crucial in the story. He's one of the inner three disciples, as we'll talk about in a little bit. He's one of these inner three, and he's very prominent. Yet not one time is he mentioned in the Gospel of John, which is odd for two reasons, right? The first reason that this is odd is because discipleship plays a huge factor in the Gospel of John. So Peter is mentioned a lot. A lot of the other disciples are named multiple times, yet John himself is never mentioned, which is very odd and would suggest, like his absence is curious. The second reason that's important is because he's so prominent in the other Gospels. So when you put those back to back, it's like, okay, in the other Gospels, John is very prominent. In this one, he's never mentioned at all. Yet then the Gospel is attributed to him. That would make sense, right? In addition to that, John was a pillar of the early church, so his absence is curious, right? Whenever you get to the book of Acts and you see how prominent John was, you would wonder why the author of John doesn't mention it. Why he doesn't justify who's writing this. Why he doesn't mention this. And if you think about it, it makes sense. In order for this very different gospel to be accepted by the masses, it would have to be written by somebody of apostolic authority. An apostle. Somebody who had this great authority like Peter and Paul and all these different things. Because the book... Like we just mentioned, the gospel is very different than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It is so drastically different that unless it came from somebody of authority, nobody would accept it. They would say, no, this is blatantly wrong. So it had to come from somebody who had authority. And so the fact that the author isn't named, despite the presence of discipleship and despite the prominence of John and the other gospels, would suggest that this is probably written by the guy who church history holds it to be written by. But that's the first thing we need to know. The second internal evidence we have is that the author was a Jew. Um, The author is very, very familiar with the Old Testament, as we will see as we progress through this study. Although the author doesn't directly cite the Old Testament as frequently as the synoptics do, he alludes to it more often than any of the others and directly insists on a correlation between Jesus and key figures and institutions featured in the Old Testament. Right. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they quote the Old Testament a lot, and John does that on occasion. But what we see is that this author is deeply embedded in Jewish and Hebrew culture. He knows Judaism like nobody else. Not like nobody else, but he knows it very well to where he will put little things that honestly to, you know, 21st century American eyes might not mean that much. But whenever you look at it and you think, what is Jesus saying here? It's deeply rooted in Jewish culture. And Jesus is going to be proclaiming himself greater than Moses, greater than Abraham, greater than Jacob. He's going to be referring to himself as a temple, as a vine. He's going to refer to himself as all these things which are very understandably Jewish. And if you study the Old Testament, you'll understand more of what Jesus is talking about. And so the author is evidently a Jew. He knows his Jewish stuff. His quotations are closer in form to Hebrew or Aramaic than to Greek. Right? So at the time, um, whenever Jesus was living, um, people were studying the Septuagint, which was the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Yet whenever we actually encounter quotations from the Old Testament in the Gospel of John, they're closer to the original Hebrew or Aramaic than they are to the Greek. Uh, his familiarity with people, time, numbers, and minute details suggests that he was present at the events he recounts. This is a story that takes place in Israel, and so it is embedded with Israelite 
history, and perspective. Um, so the author was a Jew. Second thing, uh, third thing you need to know. First thing was the author's not named. Second thing, the author was a Jew. Third thing you need to know, the author simply calls John the Baptist John. And you might be wondering, why is that significant? Let me tell you why it's significant. Uh, other than the one reference to the father of Peter in chapter 1, every time the name John is used in the gospel, it refers to John the Baptist. You might remember that I mentioned that the Apostle John is never named in the gospel. He just refers to himself, or the author, simply refers to himself as the beloved disciple. Anytime you encounter the name John in the gospel of John, except for the one time referencing Peter's father, any other time you encounter the name John, it's referencing John the Baptist. But he never uses the moniker the Baptist. He just says, John. And you're supposed to assume he's talking about John the Baptist, as is made evident by the context. So unlike the authors of the Synoptic Gospels, the author of the fourth gospel never uses the moniker the Baptist. All the other ones, Matthew, Mark, Luke, they refer to him as John the Baptist. This gospel just refers to him as John. And you might still not be understanding why that's significant, but let's, let me give you a hypothetical scenario. My name is David. Whenever we go to, fam whenever we have family gatherings, it turns out I actually have a bunch of Davids in my family. I have a cousin David. I've got Uncle David's. My dad's name was David, right? So there's a lot of Davids in our family, and family gatherings can get really confusing because everybody's having to reference one another as, for me, I'm David Lee. My middle name is Lee. I'm David Lee Tate Jr. So my family, they will reference me as David Lee and will call people different things. I've got an Uncle Dave, and I've got an Uncle David, right? We use different things to distinguish between the different Davids. But whenever I'm referencing, like, my cousin, some people will have to say David Stokely and David Lee. When I talk to my cousin, I just have to call him David because I don't have to distinguish between him and me because I am the other David talking to a guy named David and I don't have to distinguish that. I don't have to say, hey, David Stokely. I don't have to do that. I'm talking to him. My name's David. I ruled out the other David. So whenever John, the author, is writing about John the Baptist, it would make sense that he doesn't have to use the phrase the Baptist because who is he distinguishing John the Baptist from? himself, right? So in the other Gospels, they have to use the Baptist to distinguish between John the Baptist and the Apostle John. The author of John does not have to do that. He simply has to say, John. By comparison, the author notably devotes a great amount of effort to describing other significant characters, such as Thomas Didymus, Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, and Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. So it's not simply that the author, John... It's not simply that the author did not like devoting time to details. Um, other characters in the gospel are very detailed in their descriptions. We have Thomas, who is called Didymus. We have Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon Iscariot. And then we have Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. The other gospels will just refer to them as Thomas, Judas, Iscariot, Caiaphas. John does give details as to who people are. So it's not that he just doesn't want to give the detail of who John the Baptist was. He just doesn't feel the need to distinguish him from anybody else because he is probably named John. Right? Does that make sense? I hope that makes sense. Uh, so it would make sense if the author's name was also John. First thing we need to know, author's not named. Second thing, author was a Jew. Third thing, the author simply calls John the Baptist John. And the fourth thing is that the author had authority. I already talked about this when I talked about the first point. But given how radically different the fourth gospel is than the synoptics, it would only have been received unanimously by the church if it came from somebody well-known and authoritative. 
Therefore, the anonymity of the gospel itself actually supports the hypothesis that it was written by an apostle. Whoever wrote this gospel was so bold and so confident that people would accept the gospel as true that he did not feel the need to justify his authorship. You know, later on in church history, in like the 3rd and 4th centuries and stuff, we have fake gospel texts arising. These are the ones you'll hear about in the Da Vinci Code as the books that got left out of the Bible. We've got these fake accounts popping up where people claim to be writing on the authority of the apostles, right? And they'll say, oh, this is the, you know, like the writing according to Thomas, right? This is the gospel according to Thomas, stuff like that. We will have people claiming to be writing on that person's behalf, but really they're not. And they're actually using that person's name to justify their authority. This author did not feel the need to do that. He was so confident in his authority and in the fact that people would receive his book as authoritative that he doesn't even name himself or try to justify it's being written. He just writes it, and whenever he sends it to people, he knows they will accept it because he has that level of authority. So the fact that we don't even get the author's name would suggest that he was a very high-ranking person in the Christian church, namely an apostle. So that's the fourth thing. Fifth thing that we need to know is that the, the author of the gospel was an eyewitness. Uh, we've mentioned this already. We're going to mention it again. We're going to see it as we study the book. But it's very evident from the text that this person was at the events he describes. He mentions it in chapter 21, right? He says, this disciple, the beloved disciple, is the one bearing witness right now in this text. He says, I am the person writing. I was an eyewitness. I saw these things. I beheld them. I was there. So that's his claim. But then there's also things inside the text itself that bear witness to the fact that he was an eyewitness. There's little internal details that show that he had to have, had, he had to have either been there or had some level of very careful and important insight because he is detailing the time that events take place. He is detailing little minute details that nobody would notice unless they were there. And so either he was best friends with somebody who was there and they recounted every little detail to him from the time of the place to the, what the ground looked like at the time. Like he, They're recounting every detail to him. Or, which is easier to justify, he was actually there. He was an eyewitness. We're going to see that as we go through the book. It's actually really fascinating whenever you consider that. Because the gospel takes on more than just this idea of, you know, just empty witness. Well, like, it's not just a fictionalized story, right? This is the eyewitness testimony of a person standing at a witness stand talking about what he saw Jesus do. And that's absolutely beautiful. Sixth thing that we can know from the internal evidence is that the author was one of the twelve. When I refer to the twelve, I'm referring to the twelve apostles, the twelve disciples that Jesus chose to be his closest followers. And the reason we know this is because the author was present at the Last Supper. We actually get more details about the Last Supper in this gospel than we do in any of the others because we have what is known as the Farewell or the Last Supper Discourse in chapters 13 through 17. So we actually have four chapters, 13, 14, 15, 16, five chapters, 13 through 17, dedicated to the Last Supper. So this guy, he was there, he heard what Jesus was saying, but the other Gospels, the Synoptic Gospels, they make it very clear 
that only Jesus and the twelve were present at the Last Supper. So in order for this guy, who was an eyewitness to be there, he had to have been one of the twelve. Furthermore, in chapter 21, we have an account of seven disciples who go fishing um, whenever they encounter the resurrected Jesus. Shortly after that, we have the beloved disciple saying that he is the one who witnessed these things and testified. So that means that not only was the beloved disciple the author, not only was he one of the twelve, but he was one of the seven who went fishing. And we actually have a list of who the seven were. First, we have Peter, we have Thomas, we have Nathaniel, then we have the two sons of Zebedee, and we have two unnamed disciples. So we know it can't be Peter, we know it can't be Nathaniel, we know it can't be Thomas, so that leaves us with four options. It can either be the two sons of Zebedee, or it can be the two unnamed disciples. We don't know who the two unnamed disciples are, so we really can't even guess and speculate about that. It was, one, it was two others from the twelve, or maybe it was Andrew, we have no idea. But we know that there were the two sons of Zebedee, two unnamed disciples. Well, if we're just talking about the ones that we can guess about, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, we can know that it's not James. And the reason we know it's not James is because James was martyred around A.D. 44 by the time the gospel was written. James is actually the one apostle whose death we actually have recounted in the Bible. If you go to Acts chapter 12, you will see that James was the first apostle killed. And so he could not have been the person to write this book because he was dead at the time it was written, uh, which I, I don't mean to laugh at that. That's horrible. But he couldn't have written it, right? So that means it was either John or one of the two unnamed disciples, which we can't guess. But that narrows it down to three people. That's the sixth thing. The seventh thing you need to know is that the author was a close companion of Peter. Uh, of the many eyewitness accounts detailed in this gospel, many are shared alongside Peter. And he's also distinguished from Peter. In the Last Supper discourse that I was talking about earlier, uh, we actually have Peter and the beloved disciple interacting with one another. So we know that he cannot be Peter, but he's a close companion of Peter. Which is interesting, because the New Testament consistently presents Peter and John as ministering partners and close friends. Whether you're looking in Mark, whether you're looking at Acts, whether you're looking in Galatians, Peter and John are always linked together, and they're always put together as ministering partners. They're always going out doing stuff together. So that would seem to suggest that if this person was a close companion of Peter, he could have been John. And then the eighth point that I want to mention to you is that the author beheld Christ's glory. This, to me, is not personally the strongest of points, because there's debate on how to interpret this particular text that's going to be useful for this. But if people are interpreting it correctly, this is the strongest of the points. That's why I put it last. Because the author in chapter 1, verse 14, which we'll be talking about soon, in chapter 1, verse 14, the author states that we beheld his glory, which many interpret as a reference to the transfiguration whenever Jesus was transfigured and began speaking with Moses and Elijah. Why is that significant? Because there were only three people who witnessed the transfiguration. Peter, James, and John. We've already talked about the fact that the beloved disciple is distinguished from Peter. So that takes him out. We've already talked about the fact how James was already dead at the time this gospel was written. That leaves us with one person, the, gospel of, uh, that leaves us with one person, the apostle John, who could have written the gospel of John. So that's already, 
That, that's really cool to me. I don't know. I think that's really awesome that that all fits together to where just that one phrase, we beheld his glory, if it is referencing the transfiguration, that would make it necessary that the author writing this gospel is the, it's the Apostle John. Um, but in case that detail isn't as strong to you, uh, well, I'll give you one bonus one, a ninth point to remember, is that the Gospel of John and the Epistles of John are worded very similarly to where you can almost see, like, First John, it's almost a commentary on the Last Supper discourse. There are a lot of things in common between those. So the person who wrote the Gospel of John is evidently the same person who wrote the Epistles of John, First, Second, and Third John. So, take that what you will, they're probably the same author. And so, if you believe that the Apostle John wrote those epistles, well, then he wrote the Gospel of John as well. It's very evident the same person wrote those. So there are nine internal evidences that we have to believe that the Apostle John wrote the Gospel of John. I think that it's awesome. It gets me really excited because there's all these scholars who just pick up on stuff I would never pick up on. Um, but I'm so grateful they picked up on it so that I can learn it and share it with you. I think it's cool. But that being said, we have very good reason externally, internally, historically, theologically, logically, philosophically. We have good reason to believe that the Apostle John is the author of the Gospel of John. That being said, what do we know about the Apostle John? How can knowing who the author is help us in our study of the Gospel? Well, here's a few things. First off, John was one of the sons of Zebedee, who, alongside his brother James was one of the 12 apostles closest to Jesus, right? So amongst all the men in the world and all the people in Israel and all the people who were following Jesus, this was one of the 12 people who Jesus handpicked to be one of his disciples. And he was with Jesus day in and day out for three and a half years as Jesus went about his ministry. So that's really cool. That's significant. This person writing is somebody who was very, very close to Jesus, kind of like Matthew, kind of like Peter, right, who was writing Mark. So uh, very, very significant stuff there. John was very close to Jesus, and if we have anything, like, like if the gospel speaks for itself, he was the closest to Jesus. He was the one who was reclining at Jesus' breast during the Last Supper. He was the one right there, the spot reserved for like the best friend. So that's who the author John is. He and his brother were known as the Sons of Thunder. Uh, that's because they were very rambunctious when they were younger. They were probably just young teenagers or something at the time whenever they were called to follow Jesus. And you can see that in the way that they act. Uh, they come up to Jesus saying, Master, should we call down fire from heaven to consume these people? And you're like, oh my gosh, guys, y'all need to calm down. Uh, but that's why they're called the Sons of Thunder. They were very loud, they were boisterous, and they wanted a position in the kingdom. They had a lot of pride that they had to be humbled of. Um, consistently throughout the Gospels, we actually have them asking Jesus if they can sit at his right hand when the kingdom arrives. Uh, and he warns them that that might not necessarily be something that they desire because they would have to drink the same cup that he drinks, which is death. Uh, but early on, we definitely have them called the Sons of Thunder because they are very boisterous and loud people. And so there's a strong contrast between that loud person who's just very up out there um, to the more reserved and reflective person that we have in the gospel. Uh, John, along with James and Peter, comprised the inner circle of Christ's disciples who got to experience special intimacy in regards to Christ's ministry. So Jesus had the 12 disciples, right? But then he also had James, John, and Peter who got to experience 
certain things the rest of the disciples didn't get to experience, right? They got to see him go raise somebody from the dead. They got to see him transfigured, like we mentioned earlier. Um, Even whenever he was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night of his arrest, he drew James, Peter, and John apart from the rest and had them watch over him while he prayed, even though they all fell asleep. But the thing I want you to know is that this guy was close to Jesus. He was very close to Jesus, Uh, which just, I don't know, that's cool. I think that's something we should all strive for. So maybe we should read into this gospel and try to see how the author's perspective should shape our own, because this is somebody who was closer to Jesus than anybody we've ever met. He was with Jesus for three and a half years, day in and day out, as one of his best friends. So that's significant to us. After Christ's ascension, John was a pillar in the Jerusalem church, ministering alongside Peter until going to Ephesus, where he wrote this gospel according to church history. He remained in Ephesus until the Romans exiled him to Patmos, where he wrote the book of Revelation. Right? So all in all, he wrote five books of the Bible. He wrote the Gospel of John. He wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And then he wrote the book of Revelation, which is the last book in the New Testament. And would suggest that John was the latest living of the disciples. According to common belief, John is actually the only disciple who was not martyred and who was not killed. So that's cool. So that's the author, right? That's the big question. That's what the majority of this video has been dedicated to. Who wrote the book and all the evidence we have to believe that he wrote it? And I think it's very strong evidence. I think we have good reason to believe that the author of the Gospel of John is the Apostle John himself. But now that leads us to our second question. When was it written? When did John write this? I mentioned that he wrote it in Ephesus, but around when did he do this? Was this hundreds of years after Jesus, or was this like five years after Jesus? Well, um, the Gospel of John was likely written sometime between A.D. 80 and 85, right? So it's probably about 50 years after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, after his ministry. Jesus probably died and resurrected somewhere between A.D. 30 and 33. Um, there's debate about that. I typically lean more towards 30, but a lot of my professors lean more towards 33. I don't know. I'll have to look more into it sometime and let you know what I think. Uh, but regardless, this is about 50 years after that, right? Most likely he wrote between AD 80 and 85, and if you're wanting to know how we got there, I'm about to tell you. So the way that we date things like this is that there are, there are common terms that you can use, terminus postquim and terminus antiquim, and those are, I think it's Latin, I don't know. Those are fancy terms which basically mean the earliest time an event may have happened and the latest time an event may have happened. Terminus postquim is the earliest date and terminus antiquim is the latest date. And so whenever you're asking things, you're having to look at the evidence and say, okay, what is the earliest this could have happened? What is the latest this could have happened? And then basically you take the median and that's where you have your date. Okay, so let's start with the terminus postquim. What is the earliest time this gospel could have been written? And really, the earliest date seems to be around A.D. 70. Uh, And the reason why is because a date prior to the fall of the temple is unlikely because that places the writings too close to the synoptic gospels. In A.D. 70, the Romans stormed Jerusalem, totally destroyed it, and the temple was destroyed. It was a very significant event in Jewish history. Very, very, very significant. So the temple was destroyed in A.D. 70, 
And we believe that the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, were written before then because they never actually mentioned the destruction of the temple in their texts. They talk about how Jesus prophesied about it and talked about how these things would happen, but they never actually mention it. And we have other reasons to believe that those gospels were written prior to the destruction of the temple. But a date prior to that fall is unlikely because John is very evident of the fact that he's writing after the synoptics. He makes certain references within his gospel that expect people to be familiar with those other gospels. For instance, okay, so Matthew and Mark were most likely written between AD 50 and 60, and then Luke was probably written between AD 60 and 61 to allow time for him to also write Acts before the death of the Apostle Paul, right? So those were all written probably between AD 50 and 60, and then, well, AD 50 and 61, somewhere in there, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they were written just like 30 or 40 years after the death of Jesus, right, and the resurrection of Jesus and the ascension of Jesus. They were written there. The Gospel of John is writing at a time where he thinks that these books have circulated well enough for people to be familiar with the stories they tell and the references he makes to them. And I'll remind you, they do not live in a culture where there's the internet, where you can just be, you know, you can just send somebody a link. Hey, look, here's the Gospel of Matthew. No, these were texts that had to be hand-copied and mailed out and sent around the world, also during a time of persecution where people were being killed for these things. So, we have to allow a few years, a few decades almost, well, not, not a few decades, a decade, right? You have to allow a little bit of time for these things to have been spread out and circulated well enough so that people would know about Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Because John definitely makes references in there where you're like, oh, they would not know that detail unless they've heard of Matthew, Mark, or Luke, and they've read them. So he presupposes a knowledge of the Synoptic Gospels. So we have to allow a little amount of time for that to happen, right? We have to have a lot of time for those to be circulated, for people to become familiar with them, and him to write about it in such a way that it expects people to be familiar. And so if those were written about AD 50 or 60, we have to allow at least till AD 70. But um, we have to go a little bit later than that, because if the dating of the writing took place immediately after the destruction of the temple, it's likely that some reference would be made to it in the text. I mentioned how this event, the destruction of the temple, was a big deal in Jewish history. It's still talked about today. You ever heard of the Wailing Wall? Big deal. If the destruction of the temple was that fresh, it would be mentioned in the Gospel of John. So we know that it couldn't have been written like AD 71 or AD 72 because it probably would have been mentioned. Most likely it had to be written a little bit later than that, which is where we get to like AD 80 or 85. But that's the terminus postquim. That's the earliest it could have been written. Now your question should be, okay, well, how do we know that somebody didn't just come along and like write this like years and years, hundreds of years later? Well, that gets us to the terminus antiquim. The latest time an event may have happened. And for that date, we have AD 100, the end of the first century. And that's for multiple reasons. Um, firstly, a fragment of the Gospel of John was discovered in Egypt that dates roughly to A.D. 130, right? So in the early 2nd century, they discovered a papyrus in Egypt. It's called the Rylance Papyrus P52. You can go look it up, and it contains a fragment of the Gospel of John. And so if in A.D. 130, the early 2nd century, we already have Gospels of John showing up in Egypt, that means the Gospel of John had to have been written enough time prior to that to allow for circulation and spreading to where it ends up in Egypt. 
and throughout the world, right? That's just one of the places where it existed and they've discovered it. And they're discovering stuff all the time. We have very early manuscripts of a lot of these books. But the earliest one we have so far, A.D. 130, roughly, in Egypt. So that would suggest that the Gospel of John was written decades prior to that to allow it to circulate and eventually find its way to Egypt. Unless somehow we just happen to chance upon the original copy which landed in Egypt somehow. Not likely. Uh, this was discovered in Egypt, which means it needed to circulate first. Um, moreover, holding to a Johannine authorship confines us to the first century, since as an eyewitness to the ministry of Christ, it is unlikely and historically denied that he lived into the second century. As we've already demonstrated through all the talk about the authorship of the gospel, it seems very clear that the author was the, the Apostle John. And if you just think about it, Jesus was living A.D. 30, and this guy was there. If you go into the second century, this guy is too old to be writing books. <laughs> He'd be dead. I mean, like, the life expectancy back then was a lot lower than ours today. So even writing in the late first century makes him a pretty old man, especially by their standards, suggesting, like, if he was, like, let's say at youngest 15 at the time he started following Jesus, right, that would still put him... Like, he'd be pretty old by the end of the first century. So, that being said, really, the end of the first century is a late date for the Apostle John. Um, historically, he was dead by then. We, we can know that. Um, but if he was the author, we'd have to cut it off there, right? So we have A.D. 70 as the earliest date, A.D. 100 as the latest date. We land in the middle, somewhere A.D. 80 to 85. That seems like a good place to put the Gospel of John as being written there. Um, furthermore, tradition holds that John spent his later years at Ephesus, where he carried on a ministry of preaching, teaching, and writing until being exiled to Patmos. And he would have been in Ephesus around 80, 80 to 85, right? So while he was in Ephesus, he writes the book. Uh, Irenaeus says that John wrote his gospel from Ephesus, which would seem to place it somewhere around 80 to 85, near the end of the first century. So that's the author, that's the date. The author is the Apostle John. The date is near the end of the first century. And now I want to get to what is actually probably the most important question, but which we will be able to address the most briefly because it is stated in the gospel itself. And that question is this. Why was the gospel of John written? What is its purpose? Why does it exist? We already have three other gospels, which are very similar to each other and all attest to who Jesus was. Why did... John decided to write this gospel. Why did he, being aware of the other three gospels, decide to write this one? And the beautiful thing is that we actually have John give us his purpose statement in the book. And that's why this is the easiest question to answer, because John says this in chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. He says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So right there, John clarifies the purpose of his gospel. John is admitting that his gospel is not exhaustive, that's meant to encapsulate everything Christ did, but he has selectively handpicked certain events that he believes will demonstrate two things, because he has a twofold purpose. His first purpose is that he wants to draw his audience towards saving faith. And his second purpose is that he wants to defend the deity of Christ, that Jesus Christ is 
God, that he is the Son of God. He has an evangelistic purpose and an apologetic purpose. Evangelistic means proclaiming the gospel. Apologetic means defending the Christian faith. On the evangelistic side, he wants you to believe that Jesus is God. And on the apologetic side, he wants to defend the fact that Jesus is God. So he says that you may believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Those are his purposes, leading to the ultimate goal that, you, that by believing you may have life in his name. That's the goal of the Gospel of John. And so as we work through it, that's going to be the main themes we see popping up. Who is Jesus? Who is this Jesus guy? Or even better than that, the other Gospels are really asking who is Jesus, right? Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're asking who is Jesus. Right here in the Gospel of John, he's not necessarily answering who is Jesus. He is saying, who is the Son of God, right? Because he's saying, okay, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you have said that Jesus is the Son of God, but now he's wanting to go back and prove it. Right? Whenever you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you're getting this unfolded idea of who Jesus is. You start off with this guy named Jesus, and as the Gospels progress, you begin to understand who he is. John's not going to do that. John is going to tell you who he is from the very beginning, and then with each text, he is going to defend that position. And he's going to say, this is who Jesus is, this is who you should believe, and you should place your faith in him so that you can have eternal life. And that is my goal in this series. That's why I wanted to do this whole intro video, because I want to do the same thing that John is doing. I want us to have good theology, I want us to be able to defend the faith, and I want us to have with certain conviction, I want us to know that Jesus is the Son of God, so that we may believe in Him confidently, not with a blind faith, but with a faith that is aware of who Jesus is and what he's done, what he's doing and what he will do, so that through believing we may have life in his name and may proclaim that life to other people. That's my goal in this. And that's why I want to methodically work through this so that we can use this information to share it with others and show them that Christianity is the religion of truth, that we don't have to be afraid of tough questions because the truth does not fear being questioned. We can ask the tough questions and we can go to scripture and search for the answer because we're on the side of truth. And if you don't believe that Jesus is the son of God, if you don't believe that Jesus is God made flesh, come to die for mankind, well, I hope that over the course of this study, you will come to believe that because I believe it. And I believe in studying the gospel of John, I will come to believe it even more. And I hope that through believing it more, I will be able to convey that conviction to you. And so we can say that John's purpose is this. He desires to defend the deity of Christ in order that those who hear may place their faith in him and have life in his name. The way I like to present the gospel is like a series of trials. The author, John, is consistently calling people up to the witness stand to testify to who they believe Jesus is. He will call up John the Baptist first, then he'll call up some of Jesus' disciples and he'll start calling out miracles that Jesus performed, and he's going to start calling out conversations that Jesus had. And one by one, people are going to be testifying, and events are going to testify, and conversations and proclamations are going to testify to who Jesus is. And I believe that at the end of that, you will have to make a choice. Because that's what every person in the Gospel of John has to do. They have to make a choice. And that's why the second thing 
that John focuses on is belief, right? Not only is he focusing on the identity of Christ, he's focusing on belief. And so we're going to see this nuance presented between genuine belief and superficial belief. What does it mean to genuinely believe in God? What does it mean to just say you believe but not really believe? What does it mean to reject him? What does it mean to accept him? That's what we're going to be asking. And John's going to clarify that for us because he wants us to know what it means to truly be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And I'm hoping that once again, over the course of the series, that's what we will be able to do. We will be able to answer that question with certainty and with conviction. We will know not only who Jesus Christ is, but we will know exactly what it means to believe in him so that we may believe in him and that we may go out and share that with everybody, proclaiming who he is and causing them and calling them to believe in him. And so that's the introduction to this. I am looking forward to going through this gospel in greater depth in the coming weeks and months and honestly probably years. Uh, And I hope that you will join me on this journey. And with that, I'm going to close this out in prayer. Uh, Dear Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for revealing yourself to us even though you didn't need to. And thank you for giving us your word that came into the world. Thank you for giving us your only son, your unique son who came into this world to give his life for us, though we didn't deserve it, though we sinned against you, though we rejected you. God, thank you so much for all you've done, all you are doing and all that you will do. Thank you for being a gracious and loving God who has revealed himself to sinners like us. May we come to appreciate that grace and not take it for granted, but live for you each and every day. As we go into this study, I pray that you will guide me as I teach, guide me as I study, and open the ears not only of me and my own heart, but of the hearts of all people who listen to this video. We love you, God. We thank you so much for all you've done. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.